This is the latest sermon from Redeemer Community Church. We're so glad that you're here. In 1950, the governments of uh, France and Britain came together for a joint effort to create a supersonic airplane, right? And so they're going to build this supersonic airplane. It was supposed to be awesome. But as they begin this, this process and this project of building the plane, it quickly became evident that they would lose a ton of money, that, that this was a, a fool's errand, that they should stop it, they should cut bait. But instead, they pushed forward, just paying out millions and millions and millions of dollars until the project was complete. Well, once the plane was built, it spent many years um, flying and, and doing its thing, but it proved to be a financial disaster. They, they never recuperated the money that they invested in it. In fact, if they would have stopped when they felt like they should have stopped in the first place, they would have lost less money. And so in the 1980s, there was a group of behavioral scientists that were trying to figure out why is it that when we are, we are invested in something, even if we know it's going to turn out unfavorably, even if we know it's going to crash and burn or it won't go well, why is it that we typically stick it out? Why is it that we struggle to change course? And this became known as the sunk cost fallacy, which, which is one of the prime examples of the sunk cost fallacy is the supersonic airplane. And so why is it that when you're in a relationship that you know you should break off that you typically stay in it? Why is it when you start a home renovation that's not going well that you continue to dump money into a project? Why do we do these things? Well, I would contend today that the sunk cost fallacy, that, that inclination to not change course because of the time or money or energy we've already invested into something actually affects us spiritually. That the sunk cost fallacy plays a role in why we tend to not experience fullness in life or in the life that Christ has designed us to experience. And so we're going to see that in Nahum chapter Three today, so you're gonna have to hang on to see how we connect those dots. All right, real quick, if, if you're new to Redeemer, if this is your first time here in the last few weeks, we're in the middle of a series in the prophet Nahum. This is a prophecy written to a specific city called Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria, um, the capital of an evil empire. And this, this nation, the Syrians, are about to conquer Judah. And if you're like, who in the world is Judah? Well, Israel is made up of 12 tribes. Um, those, those 12 tribes used to be united as one, but they split into a north and a south. So Assyria has conquered the north. They are about to conquer the south, Judah. But God sends Nahum to prophesy against Nineveh to let his people know you're not going to fall to the Syrians like others. In fact, it's not only that you're not going to fall to the Syrians, the Assyrians are going to fall to someone else, which would have been really encouraging for them to hear, to know like we're not going to be conquered like other nations by this evil empire. So that's kind of the point of, of Nahum, to encourage God's people that they're not going to fall to the evil um, empire of Assyria. Well, we're going to pick up in chapter 3 today, beginning in verse 1, and, and Nahum writes, he says, "'Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder,' no end to the prey. Confusing verse, but whenever you see the word woe in the Old Testament, you'll see it over 50 times, it's always followed by judgment. And so what's happening here in verse one is we're seeing that Nineveh, 
the bloody city is about to be judged. The reason God is judging the city is because Nineveh had broken the sixth and seventh and ninth commandments on a multinational scale. The evil and the things that they did to other nations is such that we literally can't talk about it from the center of this room because we would lose a PG-13 rating. Like it was, it was horrible stuff that they were doing. And what we see with God judging them is that God, because he's holy and just, he has to deal with evil. He can deal with evil and he will. So we have this confidence that God is going to address the evil and the darkness in the world. So he's going to judge Nineveh. Verses two and three, it says, the crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies. Confusing verse, but I want you to understand here is that there's all these dead bodies, okay, in verses two and three, but these dead bodies are there before Assyria falls. And so we would, we would expect there to be all these dead bodies after the Babylonians and the Medes conquer them, but why, are there, why is there a picture of dead bodies within the city before the fall? Well, it's not talking about physically dead bodies as much as it is talking about spiritually dead bodies. And so when we're in Old Testament prophets, one of the ways to get the most out of them is to understand kind of poetic elements that are being used by the author. And so one of the poetic elements that's being used is called illusion. And so he wants you to hear something and for your mind to go to somewhere else. Like if, if I could paint a picture and say a word that would bring you somewhere that, that, that kind of relates to your experiences or something else you know, that would be illusion. Well, some illusion that is being used alludes to scripture. It brings your mind to another part of scripture and to another story that's already been told. But what's happening in verses two and three is it's allusion to culture, right? And what I mean by that is if you study Assyrian history, if you look at their mythology that they believed, the language in verse two would have made the original audience. So the, the original readers of this text would have read verse two and seen this, this city of the dead and they would have immediately connected the dots to an ancient Near Eastern myth known as the netherworld vision of an Assyrian prince. Okay, so when you study Assyrian history, you'll see the, the type of mythology that they believed in. And one of the stories that they held to was the netherworld vision of an Assyrian prince. And so if you're like, I didn't remember that, it doesn't matter. Don't worry, don't write that down. But let me tell you what the story is, okay? Because this will help you understand how God wants us to view nations like Assyria, okay? The, the story goes that there was a prince within Assyria who was going through a life crisis. In this crisis, he decided to make a journey to the underworld. When he goes to the underworld, he encounters the God of the underworld. And when he does this, the God of the underworld sees this as an intrusion. He's, he's not a welcomed visitor. And so the God of the underworld is ready to kill the Assyrian prince, but then a counselor to the God of the underworld gives him an idea. And he says, instead of killing him, what if we send him back? But when he goes back, he has to agree to fulfill your purposes. And so the Assyrian prince returns to his kingdom, but now he's doing so to fulfill the purposes of the God of the underworld. And so why would, why would Nahum allude to, to that story, that myth within this culture? Because he wants us to see that the city of all the dead bodies 
is a spiritual picture of a culture that has been demonically influenced. So when we see Assyria, he wants us to see Assyria as a picture of a culture that is ultimately being influenced by the demonic realm. So here's this dark, spiritually dark place that God is going to judge. Continuing on in verse four, there's, there's more allusion. It says, in all of the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. That's some, that's some hard language. I should have said earmuffs. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, we could change words to like faithless and mistress. I should have done that. But this is language that's used in other parts of Scripture, okay? The other parts of Scripture this is used in specifically is 2 Kings 9.22. And that same type of language, the, the, the faithlessness, the mistress, the grace, the charming, all of that thing is used in reference to Jezebel. And if you know Jezebel, there's a reason why people don't name their daughters that. And I was like, you know what? We should go with the biblical name. Have you thought Jezebel? It's like, no, she's a wicked, wicked queen, but her greatest sin against God was not her crimes against humanity necessarily. It was the fact that she led God's people away from his heart to worship other things. Like her greatest evil was that she took God's people and through charm and seduction and, and, and attractive things, she led his people to idol worship. And so what we see here with this, this picture here is that Assyria is a nation that's graceful, a nation that's charming, a nation that, that is ultimately um, leading God's people away through these attractive things. And so what's interesting is there's a word there. It says, who betrays the nations. That Hebrew word for betrays can also mean enslaves, which so if you have a new international version, your Bible already says that. It says who enslaves nations. And so let me tell you why this is so important for us to know, okay? The fact that Jezebel, okay, was evil, but ultimately led God's people's hearts away from, from, from him shows that there were, like, yes, she was a bad person, but behind her was a demonic force, right? a demonic force leading her to be even more wicked. The same demonic forces that were behind Jezebel are now being used by Satan in the nation of Assyria in Nineveh. And what's crazy is you see the same term used for Jezebel in Revelation chapter 2, verse 20, which shows the spirit of Jezebel, the demonic forces that seek to seduce God's people and to lead God's people astray to, to be enslaved to worshiping other things is at play throughout all of church history. It will be at play until Christ returns, which means that we need to have an awareness of how the spirit of Jezebel, how those demonic forces are still at work today. Okay, look at verse five. He says, behold, I am against you, against Nineveh, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. Once again, these, these are hard words. You think about that imagery of, of lifting the skirt and exposing um, nakedness. You might be thinking like, why would God do that? Okay, why would God do such a thing? Um, it's not for lustful intent. I think that's really important for us to know because look at verse seven. It says, and all who look at you will shrink from you. So the, the men that see this don't look forward in lust. They look away because what they see is horrifying. So the imagery of verses five, six, and seven is that when we think of demonic forces, 
typically we think it should be easy to spot. If I was like, that's demonic, you're like, it should look like Voldemort from, from Harry Potter. You're like, that guy looks evil, stay away from him. But what we see with the language of verse four and the gracefulness and the charm is that Assyria was actually attractive to other nations, okay? So when you think about Assyria, you have to understand that people under Assyrian protection thought that Assyria was a beautiful nation. Other nations during this time in history longed to be under Assyria's protection, and they saw Assyria as this attractive thing. And so what God is doing in verses five and six, he's saying what you see is beautiful on the exterior, you see this, this nation that's seductive, this nation that's graceful. You see this nation that's charming. That's what you see. But if I could show you what's underneath, if I could expose what's beneath it, you would shrink back in horror. You'd be like, you're like, yes, I thought it was beautiful. Oh, no, that's, that's not beautiful. Like, that's wicked. That's evil. Why couldn't I see that? And I think a good illustration of this is how often do you hear the term that someone is blinded by love? right? Like, have you ever had a friend that's dating someone that you know is not good, right? Like college students, you have, you have the, the guy, like a, a, a friend group of girls will know a guy and they're like, that dude is shady. That dude's not nice to other people. That dude is like super crazy, like whatever it might be. And then your friend's like, he's so cute, handsome. And you're like, don't date him. She's like, but have you seen his eyes? Have you seen him in those jeans? Like, like, you know, like all of a sudden, and then your friend starts dating them, and you're like, if they could see what I see, if they could see the shadiness, if they could see the deceit, if they could see the meanness, if they could see those things, then they, they, they would surely turn away. And so what God is saying here with, with, with Israel is, is they're, um, with people, other nations are looking to Assyria, and they're blinded. Like, love is blind. They see this nation that, that promises health, wealth, and prosperity, and they're attracted to it. And he's saying, but if you could see what I see, if you could see what lies beneath, you'd realize that it's ultimately demonic and evil, and it's pulling your heart away from me. And we'll come back to this in a little bit. Let's look at verses eight through nine. He says, are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart at sea and water her wall? Cush was her strength. Egypt too, and that without limit, put at the Libyans were her helpers. And so this is an interesting thing here, okay? Because Thebes was a powerful city in southern Egypt that had all these natural barriers that made it really hard to conquer. You have the Nile River, you have the ocean. And so it was really hard because of those natural constructions around the city for anyone to come in and lay siege, right? But guess who conquered Thebes? The Assyrians, and so when God mentions Thebes, like this would be a morale booster for the Assyrians to remind them of a nation that they had no business conquering that they actually conquered, right? Like think about it like this. How many of you guys are Vol fans for football? Any Tennessee fans out there? All right, so people are like, ah, yes. Does Tennessee have any business beating Georgia in football? Yes. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but do you remember Josh Dobbs? Like when Tennessee had no reason beating Georgia, here comes this guy that doesn't have the strongest arm and he lobs up this pass and it's like a duck flying through the air and what happens? 
Tennessee catches the touchdown, scores the win, and they take home the like the, they take home the 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 rivalry game. Like they beat the Bulldogs. It's like if I was a, if you were a Tennessee fan and you're getting ready to face Georgia, coming off this like dynasty type run at the national championship, t- Tennessee might be like, I don't know, it's a really hard. But I'm like, remember Josh Dobbs? Remember when you beat them? You'd be like, yes. Yes, like that would, if, this, if, your, if your morality was a balloon, that would be blowing it up. Like, like you're like, yes, we can do it again. And so, so God is more or less, he's inflating the morality of the Syrians, reminding them of a time they conquered someone they had no business conquering. But then he says this, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed. Her, her honored men lost were cast and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. So what he does here now is he pops the balloon. So he goes, remember how you guys beat Thebes and you had no business conquering them? Yeah, that's gonna happen to you now. Like the Babylonians, the Medes are marching in. You might think that you're invincible, that you're indestructible, but they're gonna come in and they're now gonna throw the Hail Mary pass. They're now gonna get the victory. They're now gonna storm the field. They're gonna get the win. And so, so he builds them up only to tear them down, all right? So, so God is just building them their, their confidence up only to strike it down. And so in verse 12, he says, all your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. This is more or less God saying, it's like the three little pigs. He's like, you guys are like building your fortresses with straw and sticks, and I'm gonna huff and I'm gonna puff and I'm gonna blow them down. Then he says in verse 13, behold, your troops are women in your midst, The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. When he says that your women, your troops are women, he's saying that your troops will be completely demoralized. And and so I know that we hear that and we get offended. So if you're like, I can't believe Jeff said that, he compared troops to women in a negative way. If you email nahum at hotmail.com, someone will respond to you, I'm sure. But think about it like this. Here's how it was, the movie Sandlot. Another outdated movie reference by Jeff. The movie Sandlot, right, you have the Sandlot kids, okay? And, and they have their, their, their field, they have their turf that they're playing on. But in the movie, this punk group shows up, the Tigers. They roll up on their bicycles and they, they start taunting the Sandlot and they start throwing out insults. He's like, you sniff toots and you do this. Like they go back and forth, back and forth with insults. And then at one point, the little freckled kid, he goes, oh Yeah. You play ball like a girl. And like everyone's stunned. It just shuts the arguments down. And the, the other kid goes, what? What did you say? <laughs> right? It was like, it was this. And so when he says this, he's trying to, to, to offend them and saying your troops play ball like a girl, which is offensive to us, um, not to them. Um, maybe it was offensive to them. All that to say, CrossFit girls are stronger than most guys. I'm pro women being strong, but here it's meant to demoralize people. All right. Verse 14. He says, draw water for the siege, strengthen your forts, go into the clay, tread the mortar, take hold of the brick mold. We're going to stop here today. We'll wrap up chapter three and the whole series next week. Let let me explain what's going on in verse 14. By the time we get to verse 14, it is evident that Nineveh will fall. We have had details shown to us how this city who thinks it's invincible is going to completely collapse. God will huff, he will puff, he will blow them down with ease. 
Everyone will be completely demoralized. They will be completely conquered, right? Now, when they hear this and they know that they are done for, they can respond in one of two ways. They can, they can say, let's fight. Let's give it our best. Or they can flee. And they can say, you know what? We had a good run, Nineveh. We're going to go over here now. We're going to escape, right? So the picture of verse 14 is instead of running and escaping, they choose to dig in. It says, draw water for the siege. What they're saying here is we need to store up as much water as possible because if the Babylonians and the Medes cut off our water support or our water supply, we'll have no hope. Well, they don't have any ability um, ability to store water. They don't have any natural quarries. And so they have to get into the clay to build bricks. They have to fire up the kiln, form the bricks, get the mortar, and to start building these troughs that they can then store water then. And so what you see in verse 14 is a picture of people preparing to be conquered. They're shoring up their defenses. They're storing up water. They're basically saying, we know we're going to fall, but let's just try to hunker up here as long as we possibly can. Okay, let, let, so the picture is Assyria is going to fall. Nineveh is going to be conquered. And the people's response is not to escape, not to change course, but sunk cost fallacy because they've invested time and money and have experiences here. They're saying, let's try to protect what we have for as long as we can. Knowing the result will be disastrous, they choose to hunker down and stay. All right, so, so why do we need to know this? Why is it important for us to understand the story of Nineveh um, and, and them about to be conquered in light of Jesus? Okay, so let me try to connect some dots here. Let me try to make sense of this. But I want to contend that we're more like Nineveh than we would like to admit. I believe that we are more like Nineveh and the Assyrians than we would like to believe. And so when you think about that, if like, Jeff, I don't know if I agree Let me ask a question, and let's make this personal. What's shaping your life the most right now? Think about verses verses two and three in that that demonic influence culture, right? What's shaping your life the most right now? Is it culture coming up into your life, or is it God's kingdom coming down? So what's having the greatest shaping effect on on the way that you spend your money, the way that you spend your time, the way that you invest your life? What is the greatest driving factor? Is it culture dictating and coming up into your life, or is it God's kingdom coming down? You see, the spirit of Jezebel, that that same demonic force that, that was at work in her life, that was at work in Nineveh, that will be at work in the churches and revelation, that will be at work until, until Jesus returns, that same type of demonic force is at work in our lives trying to seduce us with attractive things, trying to appeal to our comforts, trying to appeal to our desires in such a way that we become enslaved to them. I mean, this, this is so much like the line, the witch in the wardrobe. Where, where Edmund, you know, he comes into Narnia and he encounters the white witch. And, and what does she do? She feeds him Turkish delight. She appeals to his comfort. She appeals to his desires. And over the course of the time, like she is able to control him or enslave him for her purposes. Like I wonder how many of us are being seduced by our desires, 
by, by the spirit of Jezebel saying, here's what you want. You can do what you want. You can do, do it when you want, with whoever you want. Like, just have it. And, and we're just, we're consuming it. And we're being seduced by her charms. And before you know it, we're being led away from God's heart. You, you see, I feel like this spirit is, is much stronger than we understand. But the spirit of Jezebel, that those demonic forces that are at work against God's people, they want to position you away from God's heart. Like, and sometimes when we talk about spiritual things, we live in such a naturalistic world that we really struggle with this as American Christians. We have to understand that, that God is real, right? We're like, that's why Jeff's preaching. Believes that one, right? But when we think about God being real, we have to understand there is, there is one reality God's reality, but there are two realms. There is a physical realm that we can experience through our senses that we, we live in, and there is a spiritual realm that we cannot see, but the spiritual realm is just as real and just as much at a, an effect in our lives as the physical. We have to understand that. And within that spiritual realm, there absolutely are demonic forces trying to seduce us, trying to feed us our desires and cater to our comforts in such a way that they can control us or lead our hearts away from God. Like there, there are these forces that are trying to pull our hearts away from God. And so what happens here is, is if we would understand that I'm how to word this. If, if we would be honest with ourselves and, and do the work of saying, what is it that's holding my heart away from God? Or what is it that is, that is pulling my heart away from God? Right? If, if we would sit down, I think about like if you grab a prayer journal and you write in the prayer journal, like, Heavenly Father, you got search my heart. Test me and, and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and just say, God, would you, would you reveal to me the things in my life that are keeping me from you. And we just sat in that and let God start bringing things to light. Like I, I periodically do this. I'm always amazed at how God shows me things, okay? So if you would sit there and say, God, show me what's keeping me from you, right? What happens is when those things are revealed to us, we typically, um, we typically instead of running from them, kind of go into verse 14 mode, where all of a sudden, instead of changing course, that sunk cost fallacy comes into play, and all of a sudden, we're trying to protect ourselves where we are, which, let me just say this, this is foolishly trying to live in two worlds. You are foolishly trying to live in such a way that you think you're right with God, when the reality is, is that you're giving your affections to everything, other, everything else but him, okay? And as we do that, our hearts are turned. It's like, why, why don't we break this? And so I, th I think about the way I see this play itself out in, in our lives, for some people, I've seen it, uh, I see it in relationships. I, I, I see, like, for instance, let's say there's a girl who's, who's dating a guy, and she's a, she's a Christian girl, and she grew up in the church, and she longs to, to raise her kids to love Jesus, but she's dating a guy who is leading her heart away from God, right? Like, they started dating, they've been dating for a couple of years, and, and it's like, she knows this guy is not going to be a Christian husband, this guy's not gonna raise our kids to love Jesus. Like this guy is not a guy that's gonna help me love Jesus more. She knows she should break it off, but guess what? That's revealed, and then she goes into building mode. 
Let's, let's get in the clay. Let's build some bricks. Let's, let's fire up the kiln. Let's, let's dig in because what if I'm the only person that can ever lead him to Christ? Like if I break this up, no one else might ever teach him about Jesus. Or we have so much relationship together. Like we've been together for years. We have so many stories. Like I don't know, can I just walk away from that? And all of a sudden you start thinking about the, the time, the money, the energy you have invested. Instead of changing course, they stay in the relationship. You ever seen something like that happen? Right? If you're like, he's, he's preaching to me. I'm not. Like people are always like, Jeff stared right at me when he said that. I'm like, I'm sorry. Holy Spirit's convicting you. Right? Um, another way that it plays itself out is whew, professional pursuits. Th- think about this. You, you have in your mind, like, I'm going to be a successful person in life. So you go to college and you, you do your best to get that 4.0 GPA. Then you go to grad school. And then, then you do the internship. And then after you do your internship, you can either move to the big city and make $30,000 and act like you're a millionaire when you're not, or you can go to the place that no one else wants to go to to get the experience you need to then become those other people's bosses in a couple of years. So you go to the internship and you go get a job in the place that no one else wants the job, but you get the experience you need. And then you step into your career and you're making money and you're doing great, all right? But before you know it, as you're, as you're pursuing you know, success, like a, success, a successful um, like pursuit within business or, or your, your professional career, all of a sudden, like your marriage is falling apart. And you're like, we're not gonna make it. You're looking at your relationship with your kids and it's non-existent. And if you're honest with yourself, you're like, I'm exhausted, I'm strained, and I'm stressed. And you know in your heart that this lifestyle is pulling you away from God and, and God confronts you with it. Typically, what we'll do is like, like, are you saying, like, I, I went to college, I did the internship, I've, I've taken the risk, I've done all these things, like, I can't change course now. So we go into verse 14 mode. We build the bricks, we fire up the kiln, we dig in, and we try to protect ourselves here, but we're foolishly living between two worlds. And so for us, like, I think we have to understand that the spirit of Jezebel, the demonic forces at play right now, are doing their best to seduce you by appealing to your desires, by trying to keep you in a place where you feel comfortable. Because if they can do that, they can control you. They can control your direction in life and the direction they're aiming you towards is not towards God's heart, but away from God's heart. Let me wrap it up with this. If if you've got a Bible, flip over over to Matthew 11 and I'm gonna wrap, wrap up with this. When you think about the things in this world that are, that are pulling your heart away from God, the, thing, the things that you typically run after, okay, the, the things that if the, the demonic forces behind Jezebel, the things that they can seduce you with, the things that they can, they can say, like, like let's say I'm, I'm, I'm going to pick on Dan. Like, is there something in Dan's life that I know I could dangle this carrot in front of him and he's going to... He's going to go, maybe I have dangle that carrot over here, does nothing, but I know like, hey, I'm going to feed Dan this because this is going to, what is that thing that's seducing you? Ask the question, what are you searching for? I believe so many people are controlled by these things that the desires, the comforts that the the spiritual realm is using is they're trying to, the, the desire for acceptance, like you're longing to be accepted um, by, a, by, a, by a, a, a social organization in town. Like I just want them to, 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 to bring me in and accept me. And so, so you're doing the things and you're running the race and you're trying to rub shoulders with the right people and you're doing all this work. 
and it's exhausting. For other people, it's, it's approval. It's like, I just, I want my dad to be proud of me. I want, I want my mom to, to give me the love like, that I've longed for. Like, it's, it's the, I, I want the approval. And so you're, you're doing everything you can. It's like, why, why are you working so hard? Why are you doing this? Like, I just want my dad to be proud. For other people, it's security, right? Like, you're, they, they dangle the, the carrot of security and say, if you could save more, if you could save more, if you could invest more, like you're gonna build yourself a fortress of protection that if anything goes wrong, you're okay. And so, so why, are you, why are you doing this? It's like, I just wanna be secure. Other people, it's status, like the carrot of status, just dangling out there, like you wanna be a somebody. Like you wanna be the person that in life people look to and said, that person has made it. And, and so whatever carrot it is for you, I don't know what your carrot is that, that's being dangled in front of you for the purposes of seduction and charm, but I guarantee you, if that carrot is being dangled in front of you, you are exhausted, you're feeling stressed, you're feeling the strain on your life, right? And what I want you to hear is, is when you are confronted with what do you do with those things that are trying to pull your heart away from God with, you can do one of two things. You can be enslaved. You can dig in and try to foolishly live between two worlds, or you can turn to Christ. And when you turn to Christ, hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. He says this, come to me all who labor. Everyone who's working for status, working for security, working for approval, working for acceptance, all of you who are working and stressed and exhausted and strained and worn out, come to me who are laboring and who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, Jesus is saying, all those things you long for, you're gonna find in me. And you no longer have to work from them, you can start working from them. You, know, you no longer have to work for acceptance, you can work from acceptance because I fully approve of you, not because of anything you've done, but because of my son or Jesus in your place. That, that, like, that you no longer have to work for your, your status because you, I give you something better. You're, you're God's beloved child. You are a royal priesthood. You are a saint. You are, like, I give you something way better. You no longer have to work for, for any of these things, that security, like God holds you in his hand. All the things that you're longing for and you're working for that are exhausting you, that are enslaving you, are given to us better through Jesus. And when you receive those things in Jesus, you can then work not for them, but from them. And that's how we begin to experience life in Christ. So my question to you today is, will you do the work of saying, God, what's pulling my heart away from you? And will you fall into the sunk cost fallacy and try to dig in and stay where you are? Or will you turn to Christ and find that what you're longing for is ultimately found in him? God, thank you for your word. As we receive this today, it, it's harder. I, I confess it's harder for me to read myself into the story as Nineveh. But the truth is, is, is I'm way more like a Syria than I'd ever like to admit. God, I'm easily seduced. I'm easily enticed. God, I'm easily led astray. 
And God, for those of us in this room that identify with that and say, me too, God, I ask that you would help us to find freedom in Christ, to find rest in Christ. God, I, I wanna pray over our church right now. God, may, may Redeemer be a church that is not seduced by culture coming up into our lives. But may we be a church that is shaped by your kingdom coming down into our hearts. God, help us to experience in the most real way what it means to have rest in you, to know that we are fully accepted, fully approved, fully forgiven, forever loved, that we have a status that transcends anything this world has to offer. And God, let us, let us find ourselves resting in you. God, take our hearts that are being led away from you and draw them near and hold them secure. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.